Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This is for UFC Vegas 84. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. That's the first order of housekeeping. Second house, uh, order of housekeeping is uh, the MMA analysis, Tout Master, season long pool, Cody who is on the line right now. I think you were like, what, fifth or sixth? Like, you had a good run in there. Like, you profited. They paid you out really, really quickly. They're looking for new people to sign up for this year. They've been running this tournament for the last 10 years. Everyone always gets paid out. There's no BS, no yada, yada, yada. Uh, So if you don't have a Twitter account, you can email at, or sorry, you can email analysis at gmail.com. They'll give you more details from there about Toutmaster 2024. If you do have Twitter, um, my, my, uh, at Paul Shag on Twitter, my pinned tweet right now has, uh, you know, instructions. Basically, reach out to them via DM. They'll give you more details of how to get into this season. It's 50 bucks US dollars for the year. It's a pretty good uh, bang for your buck. You pick every single fight for every single card, and then at the end... You end up like Cody Saftik in what, fifth, sixth place? I didn't win any money, but you did. Yeah, you know what? The only disappointing thing is I've played Tout Master a few times, and the last time I played prior to this last season, I finished third, and I knew I got screwed because they didn't take picks on one of the fights. And I was like, I got those extra six points, I would have won it. So this last season, I was bitter. I was coming for that championship. And then it hung in the top five for like the vast majority of the season, was up to number three with two events to go, and got greedy. I think I was trying to go for the win instead of just trying to solidify getting third place. So end up getting bumped down and still with the bump down and last two events not going my way. Uh, yeah, I ended up getting paid $400 USD off a $50 investment. So it's just something that keeps you invested the entire year. You're making picks on every single card. Some picks you don't have a great lean on. You might not want to bet. You might want to add to parlays, but you're making that pick in tout masters. So it definitely keeps you involved. And then yeah, come take my money. People were shitting on me last year being like, not a great season. It's like, listen, man, I'm 67% on my pick percentages. I'd won four of the actual, like, uh, singular events. Had, like, I don't know, six top ten finishes. Did good all around. But it's a different format than betting parlays where Bryce Mitchell gets absolutely killed and costs you a bunch of money, right? So it's a totally different format. But if you're an MMA fan, it's really cool to keep involved in. And then, again, you're playing with not just me and you, but there's actually quite a few notable people in there. So if you think you're sharp, maybe you just don't have the following, maybe your voice hasn't been heard yet, come make some noise. Come come over here, win Toutmaster, and uh, make a name for yourself. So I would be honored to be playing with anybody who uh, wants to jump in. And like Paul said, go check out the MMA analysis. I'm not going to name his name, but there was a member from the community that stole some money maybe one year ago, like a year and a month ago. Uh, these guys aren't like that. Super legit. They've been running it. I think this is the 10th year for Toutmaster. So what better one for Cody Saftik to win than the 10th one? But if you think you can take Cody a- Cody's action, come do that because I'd like to see a-, a fan of the show win as well. Yeah, these guys have full-time jobs. They, they they just do this for fun. Like that's what they've been doing for the last 10 years. They don't profit whatsoever off of like running this pool. Like it's literally just a thing that they do for the community. It's a lot of fun. I think there's 97 people in there right now, which like we, those, those are rookie numbers. We got to get those, those numbers up for sure. Cause I think we were like 150 or so last year. So maybe just maybe 
they'll get a little dogger pass bump here. Uh, let's get into the action, Cody. Uh, UFC of Vegas 84. Magomed Ankalaev takes on Johnny Walker in the main event. Ankalaev, a minus 550 favorite. Walker can be had for plus 400. Super, super, super chalky. Obviously, we saw this fight not that long ago. And early, early sights and scenes were telling us that Johnny Walker was going to be in for a bad time. There's an illegal knee. Walker is hurt. Milks it. I don't know. I didn't feel it. Um, and uh, the fight's not able to continue. It's, it's ruled a no contest. So they're running it back here. It's hard to back Johnny Walker, to be perfectly honest. Like, we've, we've been kind of touting Ankaliyev for a long time about if he could just, like, show some urgency, put it all together. Like, skill for skill, there's nobody in the light heavyweight division that's better than this guy. Like, he can strike, he can wrestle. The problem with him is sometimes he plays with his food. Sometimes he doesn't come out there with any sort of urgency. He doesn't really want to wrestle. He, you, 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 watch, you watch him sometimes, you're like, you're making this fight so much more difficult on yourself than it really has to be. That's, like, the only thing that makes you, like, reluctant, particularly with, like, a minus 550 on ankle I have, is that he does have a tendency to make fights closer than they should be, but... Ah, it's going to be hard for me to back Walker after seeing what happened like in the three minutes that they were in there. Walker really didn't have anything for him. And I don't know if I don't know if the result was going to really change. Um, obviously, the no contest happened, but it really looked like Ankalaev was was on his on his way to absolutely beating this guy down. So Ankalaev is clearly the pick for me. What about you? Yeah, it's funny how a fight like Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad ends premature to an incidental eye poke, and it's like, yeah, there's no sense in running that one back. So they just they haven't they haven't to this point ever run that one back. Whereas this is a fight, Ankalaev seemed to be doing good. He seemed to be doing well, and there's an illegal knee, and they're like, let's run it back. And Ankalaev's a minus five hundred favorite, but they still felt the need to run it back. So for 2024, Cody Saftig very much needs to get back to. Who is going to shit in the apple pie? And how are they going to shit in the apple pie? So for Ankalaev, I, I don't see him doing it, but it goes back to what you said. It's like he does it to himself with perhaps questionable ring IQ. You and I have been telling this guy that he could beat John Jones or that he would beat the next guy to beat John Jones. Or at least, at the very least, doesn't beat John Jones, but secures a 205-pound world title. He's that guy. He's got skills everywhere. Super durable, solid cardio, solid wrestling, solid striking. Wrestling, though, is how you're going to win that world title. Because at the 205-pound division, most guys can strike, but most of them cannot wrestle. So for Ankalaev, there's a clear path to victory, and yet time and time again, he chooses to ignore it. You go back to his Thiago Santos fight. Santos has no good knees, is not mobile, is well past his shelf life, currently released from the organization, but at the very least, he'll stand flat-footed and he'll swing some bombs. Ankalaev could have taken him down. Ankalaev could have done many things different. Instead, he, like you said, played with his food, stood in front of him, and he ends up getting knocked down by Thiago Santos. Wins the fight, but he got knocked down, and he took a lot of unnecessary shots in that fight. And two fights later, his fight with, uh, I, I guess it would have been uh, the Jan Blakowicz fight. Man, I am all over him. How is he going to lose to Jan Blakowicz? But it's much of the same. It's a hot start, and then he gets complacent in there. And there's certain fighters, people will say, well, they're boring. George St. Pierre is boring. Khabib Nurmagomedov is boring. John Jones is boring. They're boring while dominating. They're not losing any exchanges. They're not making this fight particularly close. They're just not winning in exceedingly entertaining fashion. 
Ankalaev is not it's not very entertaining, but he's not pulling away. He's not making a clear case and argument for why he's definitively winning these rounds. And so you leave them open to interpretation. I still thought he beat Jan, but it's a close fight. And there's a lot of people that thought Jan won. Jan himself didn't really seem to believe he won. But all the same, it's a 41-year-old former champion, and you're going through the motions. And so his last fight with Johnny Walker, it's much of the same. Walker is dangerous because of his athleticism, because of that explosiveness, because of his ability to land a spinning back fist or a flying knee or some big, singular, devastating attack that will leave you unconscious. So why would you stay at range? Why would you just choose to play the jab from the outside? Why not close the distance and take him down? He did take him down. But Walker got back up. I would like to think Ankalaya was going to stick, stick to the same game plan. But he had more opportunities to take Walker back down and instead chose to do stuff like throw the illegal knee. So part of me just knows that he's capable of getting over the hump. But again, when he's minus 500, it's like he finds ways to lose. And if you go back to the Thiago Santos fight, he allows a devastating power puncher to use his only path to victory. Versus Johnny Walker, yeah, he took him down. But Walker gets back up. And if Walker continues to get back up and Walker can survive a couple rounds, he'll be live to land something that could change the course of the fight mm-hmm. um but getting back to it Ankalaev got the best Thiago Santos punch and it dropped him and he popped right back up and was pretty well fine I think he's durable enough to take Walker's big shots I just I need his coaching staff to reel it in give him the advice of fighting a smart game plan five to one I don't like it first main event of the year what could possibly go wrong tons but again we got to go with the more skillful guy that wins more often than not and Ankalaev is that guy so is he going to fight to the best of his abilities probably not but will he still win even if he fights a stupid game plan? I believe so. Uh, anytime you fade Johnny Walker, you're asking for it. But again, we're going to have to do it in the spot. All right, moving on down. We've got Manel Kopp taking on Manu- Matus Nicolau. Sorry. Diet Pepsi, Burt. Uh, Ooh, bad choice. Manel Kopp is a minus 270 favorite. Uh, Matus Nicolau can be had for plus 230. The rematch, in which case, in in which uh, Matus Nicolau won a very very close split decision, utilized takedowns and uh, you know submission attempts, a little bit of control time, got slightly out volume, but when El Cop spent some time on his back, I mean, seems kind of crazy that the guy who won is plus two thirty here, Cody. Make this make sense for me because. I can't really, I haven't bet Matus Nicolau here, but he seems like a very, very live dog. And like, even thinking of like Manel Cop taking on Felipe Dos Santos last time, it's like the, the star in that fight was like the Felipe Dos Santos kid who nobody expected to do anything. And that fight turned into being really, really ultra competitive. It kind of speaks to the quality of the, of the flyweight division in general. Um, but Outside of that fight where Felipe Dos Santos, Santos, frankly, forced Manel Cop to fight a high, high, high level of volume, there's been plenty of other times that Manel Cop kind of sits back, lands 55, 60 significant strikes in the fight. I don't know, at plus 230, Matus Nicolau looks like a live dog to me. What about you? Yeah, so you're not wrong. Both guys fought before. Flyweight fights are generally very close and competitive. And yeah, the last time they fought was a split decision. That could have gone either way. But Matus Nicolau landed those takedowns. So no reason to believe that he's not going to come in relatively good shape. No reason to believe he's not going to keep this thing tight and competitive. And then when you look at the price tag on him, yeah, it makes sense for an underdog shot. 
The one argument that I would make against it is that when Manel Cop came to the UFC, he's from Ryzen. He was allowed to wear shoes in Ryzen. He had the big power. He had the big explosiveness. He's definitely an athletic fighter, but he didn't have that cage experience. He didn't have that UFC experience. And as a result, his first two fights in the UFC were losing efforts where he did absolutely nothing. Now, the one aged quite well against Alexander Pantoja, a fight he could have won for the record, just chose not to do anything. Now that that guy goes on to be a champion, it certainly looks good. The next one against Matus Nikolaou, again, does nothing, loses the split decision. But at that point, he's still only like 28 years old. He's full-time in Las Vegas. He's a judo brown belt. He has some ground game. It's all about just honing in and making him a well-rounded martial artist. And so, four-fight winning streak since then, he's been showing you that. Flying knee over Audi Osborne, killer KO. Zalgas Zumagulov, he knocks him down twice in the first round and knocks him out. Zalgas is tough as nails, man. But now you're seeing what Manel Kopp is at his best, and that is a devastating power puncher. His fight with David Dvorak, he knocked him down, didn't knock him out, but scored a clean knockdown. And of course, his last fight, his clean knockdown, 112 significant strikes landed. As you're saying, he's not really a volume guy, but what you see is that he's capable of doing it. He's capable of doing a ton of stuff. And so again, he's got that devastating power. He's throwing a little more volume. He had given up two takedowns to Matus Nikolaou in about two and a half minutes of top control. He also gave up two takedowns to David Dvorak and had about two minutes of top control. But his get-up game is not bad. He's not the easiest guy to take down. And to me, since the last time they fought, here's a guy that's continuously getting better. Yeah, he relies a tad bit too much on the finesse and that big power to bail him out of bad situations. But the skill is all there. He's only 30 years old now. Four-fight winning streak. He's progressively gotten better and better. Here's a guy that factors into the title picture that may realistically be a win or two away from challenging for gold. They have high expectations for him. And whereas he comes out with a slow, flat 0-2 start in the UFC, again, I think he's taken all that momentum back. And the fight to fight, the skill seems to be better. The comfortableness seems to be get better. I think he's kind of coming to his own. Nikolaou, meanwhile, he had been cut from the UFC, came back, won against Manel Kopp. It's not like the results are bad. He's winning fights. Here's the problem. He beat Manel Kopp on a split, but he got outstruck. His very next fight against Tim Elliott, he got outstruck again. He got outstruck 70-64 to 64 against Elliott. His very next fight against David Dvorak, he got outstruck again, 39-36, to 36, in what was a really close fight. Uh, beats Matt Schnell, that was not the most impressive, and then his fight with Brandon Royval knocked out in the first round two minutes in. So his durability is a little bit in question. He hadn't previously shown getting knocked out, but he shows getting outstruck quite a bit. And now Brandon Royval, who's a wild man, who I was high up on, I think the guy's very talented, him going out there knocking out in two minutes doesn't bode well for a rematch with Manel Kopp, who's knocked out three of his four opponents in this win streak and has knocked down every single guy he's knocked down at least once. So if you're Matus Nikolaou, 31, he's actually older than Manel Kopp, the results haven't been as good. He's getting outstruck against lesser competition and getting by, whereas Kopp is getting better and knocking guys out. And it's not as easy as saying, oh, one guy just got knocked out. One guy's been knocking guys out. It's that Matus is going to have to get back to that wrestling. And the wrestling and holding him down isn't good enough to do it for 15 minutes. It's good enough to strike with him a little bit and mix it in. But if that's the singular game plan, it's not going to happen. So now he needs to strike to set up those takedowns. And as he strikes with Manal Kopp, I think he's going to realize he's at a speed disadvantage. He's at a power disadvantage. And if he's even second-guessing himself the slightest bit coming off a first-round knockout loss to Brendan Royval, Cop's just going to fish him out and eat something. I could see a world where Cop's not doing much, not doing much. The fight's very close. But those one bigger shots, I think, will allow the judges to realize, well, what was the biggest shot of the round? Cop. And then if he knocks him out, great, it's over. If he doesn't knock him out, it's landing the bigger shots round to round and squeaking this thing out. It was close the last time. It was a split decision the last time. Cop has just improved a lot 
since then. And with Matus Nikolaev, I'm not 100% sure that he is. So I agree with your assessment, live underdog, close fight, closer than the odds dictate. But but again, I, I got to go cop because I think he's on the way up. All right, we got Jim Miller taking on Gabriel Benitez. Jim Miller, minus 140 favorite. Benitez can be had for plus 120. I kind of like this type of matchmaking because, <coughs> let's face it, it's like Jim Miller, he's an absolute legend of the sport, but he's 40 years old at this point in his career. A little bit slower, um, but they're not matching him up against some young gun coming up, um, some superstar. It's just like... Gabriel Benitez, like his best fights are probably behind him as well. He's 35 years old. We've talked about him many times on this program. Kicks very, very hard. Kicks to the body are excellent. Um, durability has been a bit of an issue for him recently. So I think it's just like a it's solid matchmaking when you have like, you know, a 40-year-old guy taking on a 35-year-old guy. Um, Benitez may have a slight speed advantage here, but the grappling advantage should be heavily in Jim Miller's favor. Um, I don't really know what to make of this one, Cody. It seems like the market is really, really sold on Jim Miller. He went from the underdog all the way to minus 140 as a favorite now. But I don't know. I feel like that big letdown spot for Jim is is coming. He's had uh, uh, some decent fights of, of note recently. But let's face it, it's been against some of the lowest of the low that when he's, when he's getting his hand raised, you know, Donald Cerrone's kind of washed Nicholas Mata. We'll talk about him later. Probably one of the worst guys in the division. Eric Gonzalez doesn't, doesn't really belong. Jesse Butler, who, um, and then Gabriel Benitez on the other hand, I was looking through cause I'm, you know, me, I like the, the underdog shots, but it's like a win, a first round knockout win over Charlie Ontiveros doesn't exactly do it for me. For me to be like, okay, this guy's all the way back. He beat Justin James, Humberto Bandanai, Jason Knight. Like, none of these guys actually have held a job in the UFC. Jason Knight's probably the best guy on that list. Um, and But, like, frank, frankly, that was back in 2017. Like, he was 20, 29 years old back then. A lot faster, a lot, lot slicker. Just in terms of like the striking ability, I'm going to ever so slightly lean towards Gabriel Mowgli Benitez. As this number climbs, maybe if I can get a plus 150 on fight day, if people keep hammering Jim, I'll take a shot on Gabriel. But it doesn't seem like a, a, a fight that I really want to get invested in. What about you? Yeah, yeah. To be honest, you got old man Jim Miller, who Paul Shaughnessy's taught me this. If you can get Jim Miller at plus money, exactly. always worth a look. Jim Miller has the favorite, unless it's Jesse Butler or someone just Eric Gonzalez, who just outright should not be there. Well, yeah, Jim Miller can win those favorite fights, but you'd prefer to get him as a slight underdog when people are overlooking him. Problem is, is because he's somewhat been successful over his last five fights. You know, he's not winning all of them, but he's being competitive and he's been picking up some wins. Yeah, he's a constant fan favorite. He's the most tenured guy in UFC history. He's definitely near the end of a, a historic career for a guy that's never challenged for a title historic career. But yeah, it's like, how could you not like Jim Miller? So now when you get a little bit of favoritism towards him and you can get, uh, he's the slight favorite... Yeah, certainly work looking if it's worth the fade. And I think I'm going to go with the slight fade. I think with um, with Gabriel Benitez, it, it's not so much the results, which have not been there for him. He's been losing fights. It's the competition. It's that I'm willing to give guys passes when they're losing to good guys. He's 2-2 two and two over his last four. Those losses, David Onama knocks him out. Billy Crantillo beats him by third-round knockout. So as you mentioned, durability issues. 
Billy lands 100 significant strikes. Billy swarmed him. He knocked Billy down, a clean knockdown. But Billy's got a hell of a chin and a hell of a gas tank and then just dragging him to deep waters and then drowning him. David Onama fight, he was out striking David Onama 46 to 36 in the first round. He got mm -hmm. knocked down the first round. He landed 46 significant strikes on David Onama in the first round before getting knocked out. But what do we know about Onama? He's a heavy hitter and he's, a, he's definitely a solid fighter. So... Yeah, he's losing to those guys, but does that mean he's non-competitive? No, it does not, right? When I look at Jim Miller, it's like he's capable of beating some lower-end guys, but he's never been a volume guy at all. He's not a volume puncher. And if you look at this last number of fights, him versus Jesse Butler, it ends really fast, so who cares? Him versus Alex Hernandez goes the distance. He landed 67. That 67 is not a career high, but it's a career high in the last, like, four years for him because everything else is... I get that they're finishes, but 24 landed, 32 landed, 11 landed, 14 landed against Vince Pichel. When it went 15 minutes, he landed 14 significant strikes. So he's he's never been a big power guy, even though he is knocking out some people. He knocked out Nicholas Moda. He knocked out Jesse Butler. Don't let that fool you. Jim Miller isn't a power puncher. He's not a volume puncher. He's that gritty, land a couple punches, press on you, maybe take you down grind on you give you a hell of a fight and obviously he's got the bjj black belt and a great submission game the submission game is the advantage the ability to latch on that guillotine choke maybe take your back and grab a rear naked that would be there but the wrestling's not matching it paul he has one takedown in his last five fights and again it's against lower level guys overall in the ufc he's only rocking a 46 percent takedown accuracy and he's not going to these wrestle heavy game plans he's boxing a little bit maybe shooting a takedown here or there legendary cardio not quite there anymore since the lyme disease so he's fighting a lot smarter but he's not prone to just get outworked and against alexander hernandez he couldn't take him down and he couldn't match pace with them so he lost gabriel benitez not only the heaviest kicker from aka but his takedown defense is pretty solid you know, the guy was in the room with Khabib Nurmagomedov for a long time. He's in the room with Islam Makachev. He's in the room with just a plethora of badass Russian wrestlers. He knows how to stuff a takedown. Beyond that, kicks like a mule. He's got decent volume. He's shown that even though he's 34, 35 years old now, he's still capable of putting up numbers. Is not the greatest fight for Jim Miller. People don't really care for Gabriel Benitez. They're looking at it as, oh, he's a little older, and he's 2-2 two and two in his last four, and he has durability issues. So it's easy to look past him. But stylistically, he matches up good against Miller, where I think he should be able to sprawl the shots and keep the fight standing and just use the volume. Once he lands some of those leg kicks, he'll immobilize Jim Miller. Now there's not that big spring on the front foot, and there's less of a threat of shooting the takedown. And if he can just get him to where he's not a sitting duck, but slow him down, cause him to fight in the center of the cage, I think Mowgli Benitez can just go out there and chip away at this guy. Miller keeps talking about, this is not my retirement fight, and I want to fight on UFC 300, and the end is near, but I'm going to call it on my own terms. It's in the back of his mind, and I'm sure for Benitez it's there too, but this is a real good fight for him to go and get a win, move it to a two-fight winning streak, and add some relevance to your name. So, yeah, we need some underdogs. This is not necessarily a big underdog, but he's a plus-money guy, and I think a plus-money guy that has a chance of winning. So I'll take Gabriel Benitez. Yeah, significant strikes landed per minute over the course of their career. Big-time sample, obviously, there. Both of them have had quite a... Well, Jim Miller's had so many UFC fights. It's like 286 for Jim Miller and 4.79 strikes landed per minute for uh, Gabriel Benitez. So, yeah, if it turns into a volume game, like I'm kind of a, I'm a little bit surprised by like the total here. Um, just is it's like minus 140 to the over one and a half rounds. I'm like very, very tempting to 
Uh, like, I know that these guys have, like, absolutely dominated and crushed some, like, low-level competition, or they've been finished early against some higher-level competition in the, in the case of Gabriel Benitez, but I don't know. I kind of see this one going at least into, like, yeah, I, like, I, I at least see it getting into, like, round three. I really see this fight being kind of, like, a, a banger, very, very likely to go to decision. And then, yeah, Benitez wins just on, on sheer volume. But uh, they're old, decrepit. They could absolutely just fall off of a cliff. It is what it is. We'll see. All right, moving on down, we've got Ricky, uh, Ricky Simone taking on Mario Bautista. Simone is a minus 185 favorite. Bautista could be had for plus 160. Who you got? Yeah, I got to go with Ricky Simone. So obviously someone that's just been building a ton of momentum for himself. He was a one-dimensional stock wrestler. That's who he was. Fairly durable, good cardio, built like a little army tank, and then comes forward, presses you, and takes you down. Lots of takedowns. If you're playing something like DraftKings, Fantasy MMA, here's a guy that's capable of racking up a monster score. And then somewhere along the way, he starts to put it all together. He starts to fight some excellent fights. He puts a beating on Rafael Asuncao, knocks him out, which Ricky Simone is not a power puncher, so shoot it, showed a new wrinkle to his game there, and then smashes Jack Shore when people were very high on Jack Shore. That culminates in a main event fight with Song Yudong, five rounds. First round against Song Yudong, I'll be damned. Ricky Simone beat him with his striking. Yeah, it was like 14 to 12, so it wasn't like it was a big pull away. But he was fast. He's using his jab. He's sticking to the outside. You'd like to see him wrestle a little more. But it seemed like he's putting all the skills together and he's just comfortable in the striking. Here's a problem. These good wrestlers, these good grinding grapplers who suddenly realize, I can box a little bit. It's like to their detriment, and he loses two, three, four, five, gets knocked out in the fifth because he got away from the game plan. Now, he did score two takedowns against Song Yudong, but of course, out of a solid Chinese prospect, out of Team Alpha Male, he was ready for it, and as a result, Ricky Simone ends up getting that setback. I still think he's got a high ceiling. He's got a bright future. He's just got to get back to what he does best. Now, when you look at Mario Batista, super talented guy, someone that I've been high on, he too seemingly has maybe... Some durability issues. You go back to his fight with Trevin Jones. He wins the first round. He's looking good. He gets cold cocked. They've relatively matched him up light since then. Jay Perrin, that's an easy win. Brian Kelleher, God bless his soul, but he's not the man he used to be. Benito Lopez, I don't know the man he ever was, but he's not all that good. Ganito Canetti, I think he was 42 years old at the time. And then his last fight against DeMond Blackshear. Now, I like Blackshear. Blackshear is an underrated talent. Blackshear took him down four times. Right? That's problematic. Yeah, he won. Yeah, he got back up. He got outstruck 90 to 79 and got taken down four times against two takedowns. It's a close fight, dude. And a lot of people scored the fight for Blackshear. Now, again, I like Blackshear. I think he's super talented. So I'm not saying by any means, well, Mario Batista struggled against a low-level guy. It's like you beat a solid enough guy, but a guy that's not on Ricky Simone's level right now, if you think Blackshear has good wrestling, when do you see what Ricky Simone brings to the table? If you think Blackshear wasn't tiring and refusing to go anywhere, you should see what Ricky Simone can do in a 15-minute period of time, not 25. And it's not like Ricky's so much a fish out of water standing anymore. He's not that guy that just is robotic and gets punched in the face. He can strike a little bit. He can jab a little bit. I think he can make things interesting enough for Mario standing to whereas, you know, get him to think, okay, strike, think, strike, think, strike, and then plow him to the ground. And Ricky Simone has the better wrestling, the better top control, I think the better cardio, and he's just got to press. This is a good fight. This is a competitive fight. It's either Mario Batista's coming out party or Ricky just gets back in the winning column. But Ricky's not shot by no means. He's not faded. There's no reason for me to believe that he's not going to come in as an even better version of himself from that Song Yidong fight, 
whereas Mario's largely built up this winning streak on lesser-known guys. And I, I think someone who's strong, stout, and can take him down is going to pose him tons of problems. So Ricky Simone, and then I, I'm, I think I would take that Ricky Simone by decision and take the over on it because even though Ricky knocked out Rafael Sunset, he's more so a grind-on-you-like-a-tree-stump kind of guy. And I, I feel like Mario's tough enough that he'll get taken down, he'll get controlled a little bit, he'll get up. Those big flying knees, those big right hands, he's going to start second-guessing himself because of the threat of the takedown, which is going to cause him to be a little bit gun-shy and allow Ricky to have a little bit of an easier time. So, uh, Simone by decision. Can't really d disagree with that too much there, to be perfectly honest. I think the wrestling is going to be huge for Ricky Simone. Like, the real big blemish on Ricky Simone's record was the Uriah Faber knockout. Um, yeah, yeah, that was so many years ago. And obviously, maybe it's just something about Team Alpha Male, because Song Yudong was able to knock him down a couple times, too. They've, they know you know, short, stocky wrestlers and, and how to how to how to play that game. I don't know. I don't know what what's up with that. But uh, those have been like the two ugly parts, I guess, of his career. Otherwise, yeah, the guys sticks to you like white on rice and just absolutely just constantly. He's just takedown after takedown after takedown. Rep repetitive, repetitive, like every single fight. It's the same damn thing and mario has shown uh an, like a difficulty with that type of matchup and they've done a really good job of like guarding him from having to take on those guys until the blackshear fight and yeah blackshear had a lot of success taking mario down i don't i think mario's the better striker if this what takes place at, at range mm -hmm. i think they're both great martial artists all the way around i got bautista's shown that he's got a bit of submission flair as well he's in the same room as Sugar Sean O'Malley. So obviously, um, you know, you can't find a better training partner at 135 pounds to be out there with every single day. Um, love both of these guys. think they're both great, but I think it is going to come down to Ricky Simone's wrestling. Um, not rushing to the book to, to bet. Like Simone by decision, plus 140. We'll see when more places open up. May hop on, but I'm with you with Ricky Simone. Moving on down, we got Bruno Ferreira, uh, Ferreira taking on Phil Haas. Minus 130 for Bruno, plus 110 for Haas. Who you got, Code? Yeah, well, everybody knows I hate Phil Haas. In fact, his <laughs> nickname's No Hype, and I'm pretty sure I gave that to him because I don't think there's anything to be hyped up about in the slightest bit with Phil Haas. That being said... Phil Hawes is a national champion out of Iowa Community College, which is a junior college, but he won a national title and then moved right to a D1 program. He's extremely athletic. He's got God-given power. It's he himself, as a fighter, has no heart, has no chin. Two things I would never put my money behind. So I've always faded him. And again, a lot of the times he's the favorite. I love betting against him when I can get underdog money on the other guy because, again, Phil Hawes will find a way to beat himself. All the talent in the world finds a way to lose. Melvin Gillard was very similar. Melvin Gillard... Still to this day, Kevin Randleman, still to this day, all the skills in the world never were able to put it together for various reasons. So as much as I hate on him, I will give him the respect that like skill-wise on paper, Phil Haas is a problem. It's what you see in the ring isn't necessarily reflective of that. And yeah, he's on a bad streak right now. Two, two uh, straight back-to-back -back losses. Give him a pass, though. Ali Aliskaram uh, Ali is an absolute beast. Roman deletes his... Fairly a beast. These guys are tough guys. They're able to withstand his best shots and get, return fire. And that's his biggest problem. He can put it on you. 
soon as you put it on him, he folds like a cheap tent. That's why I can't get behind him. Now, this is a super intriguing matchup because he is the slight underdog. So if you were going to take a feeler on him, you'd feel better than betting him as a favorite. And I think this is a winnable fight. It just comes down to what version of Phil Hawes shows up and what's the game plan. With Bruno Ferreira, he's an Evolucio tie guy. And they have the mold. They have a just a murderous right hand. They've got offbeat timing. They're solid strikers. They've got some jiu-jitsu in the back pocket, but they're generally first or second round finisher bust kind of guys. And the takedown defense isn't necessarily there. The cardio isn't necessarily there. Is they're very problematic for the first round or two. Ferreira is the exact same thing. His record is nothing but first and second round knockouts. If it makes it to the second round, it's like a minute into the second round. They're quick finishes. He gets on the contender series, quick finishes. He takes on Gregory Rodriguez. First round knockout, looks good on paper. You watch the fight, he's not that technical, Paul. He just has a ton of power. He relies on it, and that's what bails him out of bad spots. Knocking, Gregory, knocking out Gregory Rodriguez in the first, it's a hell of a win. But again, not a fluke. He punched him in the face and knocked him out. But but partly, it's like it wasn't as if he was putting on a showcase as much as he just he landed that murderous punch of his. So that fight with... Uh, Nur Sultan Ruzaboyev, you and I took a Ruzaboyev who people were kind of looking down on a little bit, but again, he's tough and he's got power and he mashed him with that. What Ruzaboyev also has though is a little bit of grappling. And so when he took down Bruno Ferreira, Ferreira looked half lost. He put a little bit of pressure on Ferreira and cracks him immediately. Minute 17 seconds, ground and pound finish, takes Bruno out. So Bruno could potentially, and Phil Haas is, but Bruno may potentially be, a glass cannon. They have the arsenal. They have the offense. They don't have the defense. So when I think about Hawes, what's the path of victory? Just hit him. Sure. And for Bruno, what's the path of victory? Just hit him. Fair. They both have the same path of victory. The difference is the wrestling. Is that Phil Hawes is a junior college national champion. The guy wrestled at a D1 program. He can, in theory, wrestle. Is he trying to wrestle Duran Win? No. He's a good wrestler, too. Is he trying to ro wrestle Roman Deletes? No. Is he trying to wrestle uh, Liskrup? No. Those guys are elite level guys against Bruno Ferreira, who has one path to victory. Why? Why on earth would you stand in front of him in exchange ball? Why? Why would you do it? Now, he probably will do it. Why? Nobody knows. But that's what makes Phil Hawes no hype Phil Hawes. But god damn it, I'll be damned if I'm not really tempted to take that flyer. Again, short underdog, whatever. That's not the concerning part. It's that both guys have the same path to victory, land the big shot, whatever. Both guys got more than enough firepower to knock out the oppose, uh, the opposing opponent. Both guys have weak durability that they're capable of getting knocked out by the opposing opponent. The difference to me is the wrestling. And I just, I, I really hope that Hawes, who's got world-class coaching staff, I, I really hope that they say, at least for the first round, Phil, just take him down and maul him with the ground and pound. If Bruno's still alive after the first, Phil probably gasses out and gets knocked out. But I don't know if Bruno gets out of the first with a big, strong Phil Hawes on top of him, landing those elbows. So... If you want to make money, fade me on this one because I never go Phil Haas. And now that I will take him for the first time, he is almost certainly going to shit in the apple pie. And I'm going to take Phil Haas. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, I, I'm, Ooh. I'm taking Bruno Ferreira KO1 plus 275. That's fair. Just take the under one it's and Phil a half. Haas. I think it's a, uh, it could it's be a okay. Phil Haas fight. <laughs> Phil Haas. That's fair. Can't fair. take a punch. This guy hits hard. Um, I'll, I'll find out if in five minutes, or I'll find out probably pretty quickly. Um, if I've got much of a chance on this, um, just cause yeah, if Phil Haas takes him down, like obviously plus two, seven, like I don't really want to get involved in the money line whatsoever. 
I think his path is in those first five minutes. It's like Phil Haas, if Phil Haas decides to just hang out at range, let this guy find a shot, find a murderous power punch to put him away. We've seen time and time again, Phil can't take those shots. So um, at plus 275, still early in the week. Maybe maybe it'll be better numbers later in the week, but um, I took it right now just because I, I imagine this, that's probably going to become a little bit shorter. It seems like a very, very clear-cut type of fight. It's like either Bruno knocks his head off or... Phil is able to kind of make it dirty early and then take over late. Um, yeah, like yeah, Phil's a really, really tough guy to kind of figure out what he's going to be like fight to fight. It's like, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I guess the fight doesn't even really get started. He's just kind of dead. And and in fairness to Bruno, that, that fight against Nur Sultan Ruzaboa, like that guy's enormous. Six foot five, absolutely jack shredded for, for 185 pounds. He's a very, very big middleweight. Um, Going to probably cause some problems for smaller middleweights like Bruno Ferreira um, along his path. But yeah, I'm, I don't think I've ever bet Phil Haas, and I'm not going to start right now. So Bruno, round one KO, plus 275 for me. Uh, we got Waldo, Cortez, Acosta taking on Andre Arlovsky. Waldo is a minus 650 favorite. Arlovsky can be had for plus Four seventy. This one's a weird one too. It's like I, I guess Waldo has a bit of power. Like yeah, I think he played like college baseball or something. He's got a bit of an overhand right, but he, he's not a guy I would really classify as like a murderous power puncher. Andre Arlovsky is long in the tooth. Guy is washed. Volume is probably really never actually been all that impressive. Like there was a period of time where. He was having a bit of a career resurgence. This price tag, though, Cody, on Waldo, heavyweight fight. I don't want to bet Andre Arlovsky, but the bookmakers are, like, dangling that carrot in front of my face right now, and I may not be able to help myself. Maybe you can help me before I make some bad decisions. Yeah, so I was going to start to break my breakdown off with you and I have a rule here, middling heavyweights. You don't want to be paying too much of a price tag. And essentially you have that with Costa and Andrzej Andrzej is the most tenured heavyweight on the roster. Been fighting professionally since like 1997. He's been around the block a few times over. And yeah, he just, he keeps at it. There was a run where it's like, ah, he has no chin. Then he came back and he could take punches. Then he had a run where he was working himself back into contention. But his age is starting to appear, certainly. He was never a power puncher. Andrei Arlovsky, it looks the part, but he's just not really want to go out there and get that big knockout. As terms of volume, he's not a volume guy. He prefers to stick to the outside, land ones, land one twos. The takedown offense, non-existent. Andrei Arlovsky's not looking to take you down. He may try to body lock. He may press you up against the cage for a second. He may think quick little foot sweep, but nothing is, is, is of substance. He's not actively trying to take you down and hold you down. He's just looking to add a little bit. The thing with him is he's, Everybody's favorite fighter. Everybody loves Andrei Arlovsky, especially if you're an older guy. Seeing him in there compete is inspirational. And he'll win a lot of these fights for no other reason than is Andrei Arlovsky. If you look at his Chase Sherman fight, eh, it was close. His fight with uh, Carlos Felipe, super close. His fight with Jared Vandera, I thought he lost. His fight with Jake Collier, I definitely thought he lost. And these are all bottom-of-the-barrel heavyweights. Who he goes to decision with, who he either outstrikes by a very thin margin or gets outstruck by a very thin margin, and it's split decision, split decision, 
over Collier, your split decision over Vandera, unanimous decision over Chase Sherman and Carlos Felipe. All lower level guys. Now his last two, Marcos Rogerio de Lima chokes him out in the first round, less than two minutes. Pretty embarrassing, Paul. His last fight against Dante Mays, he looked flat. He looked slow. He looked old. He got knocked out in the second round. So I'm not saying the durability issues are back up, but Dante Mays takes you out. It's a little problematic. You can see that he's not quite the same guy anymore. He's on a two-fight losing streak. Gone is this four-fight winning streak. It's in the rearview mirror. He appears to be on the decline. This is a decline that should have, in theory, happened years ago. But the UFC likes him. They've matched him up extremely conservatively. And he's capable of winning here and there. But he needs that lower-level guy. Now, Waldo, in some sense, is that lower-level guy. But he's not. See, here's a good athlete. As you mentioned, he played baseball. He's also 6-4 and four as a pro boxer. And of those losses he has, he... Uh, Lost to Kingsley Ibe. He actually beat Kingsley Ibe and then lost to him in the rematch. Ibe's 11-2 as a pro boxer right now. His last fight in boxing was this Sonny Soto. Sonny Soto is currently 12-0 as a pro boxer right now. He wasn't taking easy matchups. He was taking tough guys. And again, he's not a big power puncher, but he's a decent volume guy. He's long. He's got a nice jab. And he doesn't get super tired. He's capable of keeping up that pace going on. So when he comes to MMA, it's very obvious. Most guys aren't going to want to stand with him. They're going to try to take him down. He had a short stint with Bellator. They tried to take him down, but the guy sucked. So they couldn't take him down. Coming to the UFC, he's I think he's 3-1. and one, The one lost to Marcos Rogerio de Lima. Taken down three times. Gave up over five minutes of top control. Outstruck Rogerio de Lima. Landed like 86 significant strikes, despite being on his back for over five minutes of the fight. The volumes there is that the takedown defense just is not. So his next fight uh, against Lucas Berchuski, he showed some power in that fight. He is more of a volume guy. He showed some power. To me, it was more of a comfort level, right? When he's comfortable throwing his hands, he'll allow himself to box. And when he boxes and he fights long, there is some power, there's some volume, he'll get the finishes. When he's fighting guys that there's a threat of the takedown, it's going to cause him to shell up a little bit. It's going to cause him to get away from his combinations. And also, the more he throws, the more he opens himself up. That's what's going to allow guys like Marcos Rogero de Lima, who stinks, it's no good. That's what's going to allow guys like that to beat him. With Andre, there's no threat of the takedown. There's no active threat of the takedown. And even if Andre took him down, what would it look like? Would he hold him down? No, I don't think so. So what you're going to get is you're going to get Andre, who likes to average 50, 60, maybe 70 significant strikes at a slow pace versus Costa that just should double him up. I think he's going to land the bigger shots. I think if Andre is a slight bit compromised, which he might be coming off that last fight, Waldo probably sleeps him. Waldo generally wins this fight. Waldo should win this fight. I'm going to bet Waldo. But if he loses, a, if he becomes where's Waldo and does not show up and loses a split decision, it's not the craziest thing going. So if you're a value guy, you're chasing value. Andre is usually in close fights. If Waldo doesn't put him away, this could be a close fights by the numbers and two generous judges who like Andre Lofty could score it for him. We've seen it before. But again, this is 2024. One guy's 32 years old. It's a baby at heavyweight. Moving up, one guy's 42 years old, looks like a dinosaur, and is on his way down. I can't just chase a plus money for the sake of it, so I do got to go with Costa. Yeah. I'm not going to be, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to be touching Waldo at minus 650. No, if you offered me a 6-1 to one shoey bet, I don't think I would take it. But I do think That's he fair. wins. But it's That's like, fair. At what I, of course, I think a minus six fifty wins. I think. Well, I think. Yeah. I think Andre's absolutely washed. Just at this number, you don't have to lose very much to win. A, to win a, quite a bit. Um, we'll see. 
We'll see if I if I get to it. We'll see. Maybe I'll wait for all the parlay bros to add Waldo to their tickets, and it'll be like a Saturday Saturday afternoon ad um, above plus five hundred because I think the market's heading that way. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I I think there could be something to be said for like Waldo being like, "Holy crap! I'm you know young in my career, and I'm in here with a legend like Andre Arlovsky, and he kind of just has." you know, freezes up, fights a far more competitive fight than what this uh, this number suggests. That's all I'm saying. All right, well, let's move on. We got Matthew Semmelsberger taking on Preston Parsons. Semmelsberger, a minus 130 favorite. Parsons can be half plus 110. Who you got? Yeah, this one's a little bit tricky. Like, I'm not sure I got a real hard lean on either side. And it really comes down to just, like, Matthew Summersberger is a guy that I did like. I think he's tall. I think he's long. He come into the UFC. He was a little bit green. So it's just a matter of where he fills out his frame, where he gets comfortable. And boy, oh, boy, the guy likes to walk forward. He likes to sling. He likes to throw it down. Him at his best, he gets away with it. Him at his worst is that he's just not defensively sound, Paul. He's walking into these punches repeatedly, and the damage is starting to accumulate, and he's getting hurt. You go back to certain fights, and this is just like throughout his tenure of his UFC career, but against Chaos Williams, for example, he gets hit 91 significant strikes from Chaos Williams, who's a massive power puncher. Against Brandon Morono, 106 significant strikes. Not a power puncher, but a decent enough striker. Those accumulation of, of damage, those punches landing, it's going to break your durability. And if your game plan is to just be tougher than your opponent and to walk forward, to eat his best shots, and to come, it's going to catch up with you. I think it did in that two fights back against Jeremiah Wells. Literally, he had Wells on fumes. Wells has got his hands down. He's tired. He can't keep pace. And he's get, he's dropping them. And then he just walks into these takedowns. No ability to get back up. No ground game. Loses a very winnable fight where he rocked the guy twice because he got tired. The weight cuts are catching up to him. Durability is going to start to catch up to him. And then his last fight against Euros Medic, it's actually much of the same. He comes forward. He puts a beating on Euros. Euros initially is hurt. He scores a clean knockdown, but he fails to put him away. Then as soon as Euros returns fire on him, he can't take it. And for a guy that was known to just march forward and put up big volume, the weight cuts are catching up with him. I like I liked him because he was big. He's a big guy. But the downside to that is he's a big guy. He needs to cut a large amount of weight, and it's taking away from his performance, both in two aspects. One, he can't fight a hard 15 anymore because of the weight cuts. Two, he can't take a solid punch anymore because of the hard weight cuts. So we know he's got a suspect ground game, but if his chin's suspect and he's defense, defensively he's a liability, he's going to cost us. He's going to cost us moving forward. Preston Parsons, while he's certainly not a world beater by any stretch, and, and I don't even really know how good he is. The one thing is, though, is that the boy can wrestle. He's out of a top gym, and he can definitely go out there and wrestle. Uh, two fights back against Evan Elder. It's his only win in the UFC. He scores four nice takedowns. In his last fight against Trevin Giles, he got three takedowns. It looked like he was maybe on fumes in that Giles fight, which cost him late, and he ends up losing the split decision. But the wrestling is certainly there, and I'm pretty sure he was relatively on short notice. For this fight, he's got the full camp. Semmelsberger is coming in short notice to replace... Uh, Basil Hafez. So we all seen Basil Hafez. He almost goes out and upsets Jack Madalena. He's a power heavy grappler. This is likely going to be wrestler versus wrestler in a hard grappling match. I feel like Preston Parsons is going to come in in shape with the proper game plan. Semmelsberger, meanwhile, on short notice, it's going to be a tougher weight cut. His somewhat compromised cardio might also be a problem. And man, if you look at that fight with Jeremiah Wells, the guy's concussed. 
and is still just taking him down with rudimentary takedowns and wants to fight hits the ground. He's just like got no ability to scramble and, and, and get himself free. So, ah, like not a sexy fight at all. And a fight that you could see going both ways and you could see screwing you. But like I got a, a couple of these really short underdogs for no other reason than give me the dog. It's a dog or pass type fight. This is one of them. So the plus 110 on Preston Parsons, I'll take it. Will it be high up on my list of plays this week? Certainly not. But I think this is a, an underdog with a chance to come through. He's just going to have to take him down and hold him down and hope that the short notice uh, affects Semmelsberger because standing, Semmelsberger's got the advantage. Again, this is a style clash. Uh, I want to favor the wrestler and the grappler on full camp. Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that. Um, full agreement. Uh, give me the wrestler who's actually been on a full camp at plus 110 in, uh, in this spot. I've never really been all that impressed by Semmelsberger. Obviously, in a different world, he wins that Jeremiah Wells fight. He doesn't get taken down six times. But, like, that's just the game that we play here. It's like some refs are going to step in, stop that fight from continuing. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a finicky sport sometimes. It's, uh, that's what they call variance, you know? What are you going to do about that? Yeah, yeah. And you, you, you almost got me pretty bad on the A.J. Fletcher one, but it's like you had a kid that had been training MMA for like 16 months, and mm-hmm. he almost beat him. And then you look at his other wins, it's like Carlton Minus, Jason Witt, Martin Sano. Oh, shit. He's not that good. Nice win over Jake Matthews. I won't take that one away from him. But the two subsequent fights to that, he don't look his, himself. So uh, maybe wait for Wayans to see like how bad Semmelsberger struggles to make it. But yeah, the... Pre-fight flop, I feel like I got to go with Parsons. All right, we got Marcus McGee taking on Gaston Bolanos. Minus 240 for McGee, plus 205 for Bolanos. Who you got? Yeah, so I'm sure you got Marcus McGee's uh, graphic on the screen right now. They say he's 33, but does he not look like a 475-year-old wizard? This guy looks (laughs) old in the face. But uh, no, he probably is a wizard, and he's got some magic up his sleeves. I like him. He's at an MMA lab. I've always been a big fan of John Crouch and company over there. And very much they have a similar mold. These guys can strike. They can wrestle. They're very grindy. They come in good shape, and they fight with a very high degree of ring IQ. It didn't seem like on paper Marcus McGee is the most talented guy going, but you go back and you watch these fights on the regional scene. Lower level of competition, but he shows out. He looks good. Comes into the UFC against Journey Newsom. He took the fight on like, oh, I don't know, two, three days notice. Is an underdog. Looks solid. In the gym, the rep on him is that he's got good, uh, very solid grappler, very solid back take, loves a rear naked choke, and he puts it on display against Newsom, who on paper also had some jiu-jitsu and maybe could have matched McGee. Plus, he legit had a full camp. McGee came in on a few days' notice. Then they give him JP buys who can't take a punch, and McGee flatlines him. So that one, not as impressive just because of the opponent. But, yeah, JP buys is a hot, solid wrestler. Uh, you know, his back was against the wall. He needed the win. It's not a bad win by McGee. It's just, I don't know how much stock I would put into it. What I do like is that he's super well-rounded. Cardio seems to be solid. His grappling seems to be solid. Striking's pretty good. And again, when you fit that mold of those MMA lab guys, you can kind of do it all, and they make a lot of good choices. For Bolanos, the dream killer, um, if you're a kickboxing fan or a Muay Thai fan, you'll remember this guy in Muay Thai fighting for Lion Fight. He mm-hmm. is devastating. I saw him live. The Fight Network plays... Yeah, yeah, you see them live. And Fight Network has, because uh, we bought HDNet and Access TV, and they have the Lion Fight video library. So they send all their Lion Fight stuff, and they're like package some stuff together. Bolanos has got like three episodes just of his highlights. And the spinning back elbow. I've not seen anybody in my life land more spinning back elbows than this guy. Like, he is just devastating. He's very smooth. He's very technical. He's got a ton of power. He will knock you out. 
Switching to MMA, the problem is always going to be for these world-class kickboxers, these world-class Muay Thai guys, it's going to be how do you transition into the wrestling? And so far, that's been the way to beat him. His losses, Brandon uh, LaRocco, one-and-one, triangle choke. Daniel Carey, these are low-level Bellator guys. He caught him at the guillotine. Solo Hadley, that's my boy from Arkansas, not going to take anything away from him. Boxer, and he drops a split decision to him. They're not great losses. So the UFC signed them, I was a little bit surprised. They've matched him up with Aaron Phillips, who's essentially bottom of the barrel, and he wins. Now, no doubt about it, he's working on his wrestling. No doubt about it, he's working on his grappling. His coaches will tell you how much he's dedicating to that. But he's like blue belt, blue belt level jiu-jitsu. You know, it's so hard to be world-class at something and then have everything else just catch up. So he's 10 fights into his pro career. He's still trying to get that comfortableness. But certain things like the spinning back elbow, you can't do it anymore. Not because it wouldn't work. But because if it doesn't work, you are just giving your opponent the positions. Clearly, he struggles with grappling. Clearly, he struggles with pacing at times. And he has that big power. But if you don't knock out Marcus McGee, it's going to be a long night. And McGee grinding on him, leaning on him, taking him down, taking his back, rinse and repeat, and doing it for 15 minutes if need be. So I think McKee just softens him up and submits him at some point. McKee, McKee by submission. Um, I like the guy. I, I, I was going to say I like the kid. <laughs> he ain't no kid. I like the guy. I like Marcus McGee. I think that this, again, stylistical clash. You've got an excellent striker, dynamic striker, versus a guy who can also strike, who can also land counter punches, who's also very mobile and moves well. The difference is, is that he's rugged. He's grindy. He trains with a room of all-American wrestlers and Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts, and he's going to be equipped to do that. Bolanos has been working with all-American wrestlers and BJJ black belts, but he, he's getting smoked by them in the gym and hoping to get better. McGee's being competitive with these guys in the gym because he's already at that level. So I think McGee just mixes in the grappling in between um, landing a couple combinations, landing that left hook, backing this kid up, making him second-guess himself. Susie takes him down, grind on him, tire him out, take the back, grab the choke. Here's my problem with McGee, Chalk McGee, yeah. in this fight. I mean, I may be a little bit... Uh, bias because me and me and the dirty bird kent carter who was actually one of the co-hosts of this show many moons yes. ago for episodes that years. probably nobody um uh, i don't even think i could dig them up if i even tried at this point but um we saw gaston bolano was one of his first fights for lion fight when we were down in vegas for international fight week we saw one of his like spinning elbows or whatever just Lit up the apps, the, the room. Guy's an absolute baller on the feet. Obviously, grappling is a big work in progress. He's been making this transition to MMA. My problem with, with McGee is that in his two UFC fights, you know how many takedown attempts we've got? Now, it's, they've both been finishes. He got a submission. He has zero takedown uh, attempts. Now, that may very well, it should change in this matchup because I don't think, like I mean, that's the easiest path to victory for literally anybody who's going to be taking on Gaston Bolanos. Um, a few days ago, three or four days ago, I took a shot at plus 255. I have a little bit of CLV on Gaston Bolanos. Um, maybe because it, you know, holds a, a spot deep in my heart. But uh, also because I know that this guy's striking is like super, super legit. If he can fill in the other gaps, he's still only 31. He's two years younger than Marcus McGee. If he can fill in those other gaps... We're going to have a problem on our hands here. So, um, yeah, let's make the – you want to start with the year out, right? We'll do a two-to-one shoey. Two-to-one shoey. 
Two to one shoey. Sounds like a bad idea for me, but I will take it, Paul. You got yourself a goddamn deal. I'll take Marcus McGee on that. There we go. I have a little I have money on, on Bolanos, but it's yeah, it's minus two forty plus two two oh five. We'll see if uh CLV based on our on our bet will be uh in one of our favors or not. Either way, should be a fun fight. Moving on down, we've got Farid Basharat taking on Taylor Lapolis. Farid is a minus 275 favorite. Lapolis can be had for plus 235. Who you got? Oh, this one's a little bit uh, conflicting for me. So on one hand, I like the Basharats. I like Farid. I like Javier. Javier, personality-wise, lost it for me last time out. Kick a guy in the balls and then make a big deal about it. Like, what are you doing? But like skill-wise, ah, I think these kids are really good, man. They're solid, undefeated prospects. They're out of Las Vegas now, full-time. Jake Shields, their jiu-jitsu coach. You hear nothing but good stuff about them. They can strike. They can grapple. The sky's the limit for both of them. The thing is, is that the performances themselves, wins, solid level of competition, but like all these close. These are close fights. They're not really running away for the most part. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would go back two fights for him against Damon Blackshear. Competitive fight. He gets the three takedowns. By the striking numbers, it's close. I mean, I thought uh, Blackshear was landing some decent strikes standing. He was doing an excellent job. Is that Bashrat's able to mix in that wrestling? That's what they like. His last fight against Klitz and Rodriguez, this was supposed to be a good fight. Rodriguez is a 25-er. Can't make 25. They threw him up to 135 as a punishment, and he got smoked right away. Not taking anything away from Bashrat. I think the kid is legit. He's a real deal, but there is something to be left to the imagination. How good is he? And his brother's the same boat. He's 26, his brother's 28. But the word on the wire is his brother is the next world champion. His brother Javier is his great talent. And what you see in Javier's fights, is they're very close. They're very competitive. So part of me thinks he's prone at some point to getting upended by somebody. Now, what would the kind of guy to beat him be? I think it's got to be someone with very solid takedown defense who's a better striker. If you can stuff the takedowns and force him to fight on his feet, he becomes uncomfortable. He's quick in bursts, quick in explosion, but he's not great at sustaining it. He needs to explode with a couple combinations, a couple strikes into that takedown, take you down. Might work. Might work fantastic. But Taylor Lapolis poses a lot of problems because for a fighter out of France, he got solid takedown defense. The guy can most definitely stuff. He's got tons of experience. This is his second run with the UFC. He won a world title for Aries. He's fought against a bunch of solid level guys. He's been in there against better wrestlers. And yes, he's been taken down in his career. But I, I would say that I'm kind of, I kind of like it. I kind of like not only his ability to get back up if need be, but just to outright stuff the takedown. Now they bring him back to the UFC, takes on this Kowlin Lawfran. Can't say it's the greatest fight going. He does get taken down twice on 11 attempts. He gave up some top control. None of that's great. Basharat replicates the exact same game plan. He probably scores some takedowns. He probably racks up some top control. I could see him winning that way. I could. I can't just take favorites the whole card, and I can't take these plus 110s and convince myself that they're underdogs. It's like there is going to be a legitimate favorite that shits in the apple pie. Who's it going to be? I feel like Basharat, for my money's worth, might be that guy. Because Laplace has a striking advantage. He's got a speed advantage. I think he's got better footwork. He's got a good jab. He moves lit or laterally. And I think he could do an excellent job of just outpointing him and, and pulling away. The takedowns is going to be the problem because you know Basharat's going to be coming in for them. But again, Basharat's taking on not the greatest level of wrestler. So maybe it's deceiving. He's able to take down guys two or three times and hold on to them. If Lapolis can stuff the takedown, or better yet, get back up and make him work, I could see him greasing out what is going to have to be a close decision. And that's the main thing. If you don't have a hot lean on either side, 
I think the fight goes to decision. Either Bashrat holds him down and wins by 15-minute judge's verdict, or Lopolis outpoints him on the back foot with the jab and wins a judge's verdict. So in both scenarios, I kind of feel like the over is going to hit. The total is going to be a uh, fight goes the distance. Who wins? Bashrat's got the wrestling. Bashrat's got the grappling. On this card, I'm largely uh, backing that. I just got a bad gut feeling that Lapolis is not the kind of guy you want to fade. This number looks generous on him. Uh, I think he's capable of stuffing takedowns. He's starting to get comfortable. He's got a ton of experience. He could be a problem in this fight. So I'm just going to plug my nose and take Lapolis. It may be the PRP pick all the way at the bottom, but I think he's uh, one of these sizable enough underdogs that could go out there and, and show out for us. Love it. Love it. Let's go. Lapolis plus 235. Um, yeah, I, I just echo a lot of the same sentiments that you have there. Um, th yeah, this guy obviously has one UFC fight, but uh, one UFC fight in this new tenure. Obviously, he was there before, got cut after going three and one in the promotion, which is absolute madness. Pretty dumb, if you ask me. And then fought some really good guys over in Europe and got even better. Um, Basharad's obviously 11 or Fareed Basharad is obviously 11 and 0. Grappling should be there. The one thing that annoys me, annoys me, maybe, maybe not even the right term, but that bothers me is that we're at the apex. It's a small cage. It should be a little bit easier for Basharat to track down Taylor Lapolis in a small cage there to secure those takedowns. Like those are obviously in play, but, um, on the feet. I think Lapolis has a massive advantage, and at plus 235, he will 100% be making my card. All right, moving on down, we've got John Silva taking on Weston Wilson. Biggest favorite on the card, making his UFC debut, John Silva. Weston Wilson can be had for plus 600. And I think this number has less to do with the fact that people think that like John Silva is like some sort of future champion, more the fact that like Weston Wilson... Seems like he may be the worst guy on the roster, Cody. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Because not only do you got one guy that's a 950 favorite, the 950 favorite's taking the fight on like 10 days' notice. Like Weston Wilson was supposed to fight uh, Gabriel Santos, which he would have got killed in. Mm -hmm. And now he's getting a guy on 10 days' notice who's still a 10 to 1 favorite over him. So, yeah, a little bit crazy, I suppose. Um, when you look at Weston Wilson, he's got a six-inch reach advantage. He's got a massive height advantage in this fight. He does come from a striking traditional martial arts base. Yeah, if he was able to somehow play off his back foot and dance around and fight like a long fighter, maybe that would be his path. What I'll tell you 100% is Weston Wilson's last fight against uh, Drew Anderson Brito proved that he, he can't grapple. If you want to go in there and you want to take him down, you will. If you want to get on top of him, you will. You would like to smash him once you're on top of him, you will. So Dranison Brito does exactly that. Jean Silva won't do that. He's not really a grappling guy. He's gonna stand and he's gonna probably try to enter the pocket, land some murderous shots from the inside, and knock out Weston Wilson. So he's gonna fight a completely different game plan than Joannis and Brito and get the same result, which is a first round knockout. Weston Wilson's got durability issues. Being so tall, it's got its benefits. It's also got its downside. And his problem is, is that he stands very tall. So he's prone to overhand shots. He's prone to guys that fight in the pocket. He doesn't have the ability to counter in tight quarters. And as you mentioned, they're in the apex. So even if he had an ability to use this length and distance, he's not likely going to apply it correctly in a smaller cage where Jean Silva is going to be able to just move forward, get those, get into that flinch type position, get in tight quarters, and then just land on him. Wilson's been knocked out many of times. 
by lesser punchers than John Silva, I would think Silva puts it on him. Now, the other thing is people say, well, Silva's short notice, he throws heat, and he generally knocks out his opponents. So is there not a world that exists where he gasses himself out trying to knock out Weston Wilson, gets tired, maybe loses the latter rounds? Possible, possible. But his fight on the contender series against Kevin Villegas, that thing was a banger. It went 15 minutes. This kid's not, even if he tires, he's not going away. He's still going to be there. And for Weston Wilson to apply that game plan, he would have to take an absolute beating for seven minutes and then come back and win the latter eight minutes. He's not going to take a seven-minute beating. He never has, probably never will. So as much as I like Weston Wilson, I like... You know, I like karate. I like the, you know, that that kind of game. It's like, it's not been applicable for him. He should have never been signed to the UFC. They needed somebody ultra short notice. He jumps in and gets crushed by Brito. They over him a favor fight. His favor fight was Gabriel Santos. And then he's pulled out and they mash him up with another murderous Brazilian. So this is, this is what he's being brought in to do is get absolutely crushed by these hard-hitting Brazilians. And so far, uh, he's been living up to... Exactly that. So he's got a job to do. He's going to do it. 950, you're running into banana peel pricing. It's mm-hmm. like, well, what if Silva rolls his ankle? Or what if, you know, he kicks Weston Wilson and breaks his own leg? Or what if, what if, this one's been killing me a lot lately. Uh, he smokes Wilson and then he just illegally knees him in the face or punches him in the back of the head. I had bad luck in 2023 getting disqualified. Here's another thing. How come my guy's always getting disqualified? I've never <laughs> won a bet where the other guy gets disqualified. Killing That's me. probably Killing. not true. God, I'd have to think back, but like, it all works out in the wash. My, my, my guy always gets disqualified. Is all I'm saying. It always so, feels yeah, that way. So yeah, what could possibly go wrong with Jean Silva? Yes, some something like that. He gets a little bit over eager. He gets a little bit over aggressive. He lands something stupid. The Nevada Commission doesn't review it, and then Bob's your uncle. You lose everything. Maybe, maybe, but yeah, I don't know. Twenty-seven hard hitting. Fought in the contending series. Looked good. Short notice. Very winnable fight. Weston Wilson shouldn't be there in the first place. You, you can't factor in DQs and, and blown out knees and stupid random stuff like that. That will happen. You just can't let it creep into your head. So I just got to throw it out there and, and, and go with Jean Silva. But I will admit, he's a top ticket guy. But at 10 to 1, I can't even put him on the top ticket. He just he does nothing. He does nothing. Probably have to be a second ticket guy. I need two people in the minus 300 range, the minus 250 range to get me even money. A 10 to 1 guy with what am I going to put him with Acosta and both of them get me what minus 500 you know what I mean like there's nothing there's nothing to be gained there and I got a greasy middling heavyweight and a dude that took the fight on a week's notice so who probably still kills him don't get me wrong but you know I'm saying you're 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 opening yourself up to a a little more risk than maybe you'd like to so he's definitely the play um just if he loses I think he would have to be some crazy thing which we see it's MMA we see it all the time I'm just hoping that first card of the year, bad luck is uh, not here to haunt me. Yeah, the Vallejos fight on Contender Series was an absolute banger, and credit where credit's due. It's like, obviously, he has tons of first-round knockouts, so whenever you see that, you're like, oh, well, can this guy get into the second round, third round? In round two, like, so he lost the striking battle 16 to 24 uh, in significant strikes in round one, and then he put up 39 in round two and 32 in round three, winning the strike uh, significant strike totals in those two rounds. So he proved that like at a high pace, high intensity fight, he can go a full 15, um, which is obviously huge. You know me, I love under, like I love betting underdogs and, Oh, you don't have to bet very, very much. It's like, 
I can't pull the trigger on Weston Wilson. It's like, I think this guy absolutely blows. And even though Jean Silva isn't a grappler, typically, I wouldn't be surprised to see him actually, like, mix it up here and, and, and take, you know, the one thing that, like, Weston Wilson may have an advantage here is he's very, very long, has a big-time reach advantage. It's like, uh, you can mitigate that by, like, making it ugly, taking him up, up, up against the cage, and, and going about your business that way. So I wouldn't be completely stunned to see Jean Silva take this fight to the mat, um, which is obviously not his regular type of style. But, yeah, everything about Wesson Wilson just says he doesn't really belong at the UFC level. All right, we got Tom he's Nolan. Like, he's like, he's like oh. Charlie Ontiveros. You know, he, he made it there somehow, but yep. it ain't going to last very long. No, definitely not. Ontiveros stuck around a lot longer. That speaks a lot more to the level of competition inside of the octagon these days than in than hindsight. They gave him like Kevin Hall and Steve Garcia. Like they're not, yeah. they're not exactly easy fights, but that's what happens he when you get here. It's like, like what three different weight classes or whatever. They're like, yeah. oh well, let's see if we can try you out at 155 pounds. You're enormous, and she's like, yeah, nah. Just doesn't. He's a, he, he's enormous, and he comes from a traditional long pant kickboxing background, similar to Weston Wilson, right? They they got traditional martial arts. They're long. They move well. They got some flashy kicks, and it'll win fights on the regional scene, and it'll it'll give you some highlight reel knockouts on the regional scene. But as soon as you got to come play with the big boys, and I get it, UFC's not the best guys in the world anymore. But these guys are taking on tough guys. They don't get the easy UFC fights. They are the easy UFC fights, and it just generally doesn't go well. No. All right, we got Tom Nolan taking on Nicholas Mata. Tom Nolan, a minus 340 favorite. Mata can be had for plus 280. Uh, you're going to have to refresh me on Tom Nolan here. All I know about like Nicholas Mata is durability isn't quite there. Uh, volume isn't quite there. He has decent power, but it's like I wouldn't... I'm not overly impressed by that. Like... I don't really recall much about this Tom Nolan. I obviously have a little bit more research to do. There was plenty of time off. Didn't get into... Uh, uh, we've been busy with, like, obviously a lot of different uh, different shows and stuff here. But I don't know. It's The price is obviously pretty wide on Tom Nolan here. But it's like, I'm not... I don't think I have any intention of betting Nicholas Mata. I never... Never really have and don't plan on starting now. I really think this guy's one of the lower level guys in the in the organization. He's got tons of flaws and um not all that much upside, but obviously with Nolan, he's pretty unproven, hasn't taken on, you know, too many he's new in his career and uh I guess we're gonna find out like what level he is in this fight, but I'm gonna <laughs> More so than a than a Nolan pick, it's a it's a mod of fade. Tom Nolan for me. What about you? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm thinking the same thing. I think a lot of people are saying thinking the same thing, and this is very trappy. It's very trappy. We're gonna take Tom Nolan, but it's not the greatest decision going. And whereas I faded Bashroff for Taylor Laplace, that might not be my best move. If there was a secondary big favorite that's very prone to potentially shit in the apple pie, it's Tom Nolan. It's Tom Nolan for no other reason than nobody that I've spoken to is betting Tom Nolan because they like what Tom Nolan's bringing to the table. They they love what he's bringing to the table. It's more so we're all fatally Moda. Moda ain't the same guy he used to be. His durability's way out the window, and we'll get down to what makes him especially bad 
Um, but he, he's just not the same guy. The thing with Tom Nolan is that you got a six and one amateur, right? Who's five and zero as a pro. He's low on the experience level. Uh, sorry, six and zero as a pro. Six pro fights over the span of a little over three years. He's only twenty three years old, so he's very young. He's very green. He makes a ton of mistakes. His one amateur fight, he gets tired and he gets knocked out in the third round, walking into a strike. There's a lot of learning. There's a lot of developing that still needs to be done. And when you're fighting in a circuit over in Australia or New Zealand that isn't the most developed, it doesn't have the highest profile guys, it's not the highest profile gyms, a lot of the time, it's hard to get a read on these guys. So he's fought a 2-2, two and two, an 0-1, oh a 2-0, and oh, a 7-1, and one, but that's an Australian 7-1, and one, a 9-6, and six, and then he jumps onto the Contender Series. He likes to come forward. He's aggressive. He's got some hand speed. There's something that you can like about Tom Nolan. But at 23 years old, he's going to get exposed by somebody. He's going to have some lumps. He's going to have some setbacks. It's going to happen. To say that he's a 3-1 to favorite over anybody in the division would be a bit of a stretch, especially because he's still only 23. Now, he jumps onto the Contender Series against that Bogdan grad. He's like 11-1 and at the time. And uh, I want to say it was an even-money fight. I think Tom Nolan might have been like a minus-130, like slight favorite. But it just goes to show that it was hard to get a read on him. How good is he? He looks okay on the regional scene against lower-level guys. And again, defensively, he's not a gem. He's walking into shots. He goes against uh, Bogdan grad. Beats him up pretty good. Gets a finish in like uh, less than a minute and a half, less than 90 seconds. Gets the win, gets the contract. Now you're into the UFC. Moda, meanwhile, there was a time where Moda matched up really good against this guy. He used to be hyper aggressive and he has a nasty left hook. He's got legitimate power. When you look at Nicholas Moda on the regional scene, there's a lot that you can like about this guy. He knocks out Joe Selecki, right? That's a solid win when you think about it. He knocks out uh, Joseph Lowry, solid win. Juan Gonzalez. The Caesar Balamaca. That's a six and one, a six and one, and a nine and one. Comes to the UFC. He's fought Jim Miller. He knocked out Cameron Van Camp. He's got legit power. He comes forward. He'd be a problem, especially for a 23 year old kid. Who I'll tell you what's gonna happen. This 23 year old kid is gonna. It's the apex, so it's not like there's a live crowd, but it's his UFC debut, and you're antsy, and you're nervous, and your style is hyper aggressive. Beat in your in the face. Close the pocket and scrap. And that's probably what he's going to do here. Go back to his amateur loss. It's what he does. He gets countered. He gets knocked out. As a pro, he's fought relatively lower level guys that just didn't land that shot. Mata's left hook would be a problem. Mata aggressive would be a problem. I think this has got potential uh, potential upset written all over it. Here's why don't got the cojones to do it. It's that last fight with Trey Ogden. I don't care about the no contest. I don't care about the out grappled. He looked petrified to throw a punch Paul. He didn't even want to engage him. Where was the aggressiveness? Where was the guy that marches forward? Where was that devastating left hook? Well, I'll tell you, Jim Miller knocked him out, and then Manuel Torres knocked him out. Robert Hale had previously knocked him out. Antonio Carlos Ribeiro knocked him out, and he lost on the Ultimate Fighter by re-naked choke, and his other losses re-naked choke. Of his five pro losses, five of them are inside the distance. There's no contest. Should have been an inside-the-distance loss. Maybe. I don't know. It wasn't out. They shouldn't have stopped it. But you never know. The arm triangle could have got tighter. And his fight on the contender series or on the Ultimate Fighter was an inside-the-distance finish. He's got massive durability problems. But they used to be submission losses. Now they're knockout losses. Now guys throw, they connect. And when they connect, he wobbles. And when he wobbles, he falls over. And when he falls over, they stop the fight. It's not going good for him. So for him to come out against Ogden, who's a non-power puncher, Paul. Trey Ogden, talented. Got some grappling. He's head coaching uh, Glory MMA and Fitness now. He's a likable guy. Got some okay decision-making skills. Power ain't in his arsenal. He's not a finesse striker. 
there's nothing that would suggest this guy's going to knock me out. I need to mind my P's and Q's. And he did not engage him. And in, in the process of not engaging him, he looked utter shit and should have lost the fight, but a no contest bailed him out. That's fine, but like now it's very hard to be like, no one's going to walk into a shot when it's like, I'm not even comfortable with Mata throwing the shot. Like, yes, this kid might be hyper aggressive and walk into a counter, but like you got to be throwing the counter. You can't just be staring like a deer in the headlights and so far outside of the Van Camp fight, which Van Camp didn't have any success in the UFC, but, but outside of that, I suppose, Mata just looks like a shell of himself. He doesn't really want to be there. He's still only 30 years old, so he's not old. He's not over the hill. It's just like mentally he's shot. And I've talked to a lot of fighters. It's like once they stop believing in themselves, it's all downhill. Like You need that belief. And his belief doesn't seem to be there. And so for all the faults that we talked about Nolan, he's got tons of belief because he's an undefeated pro who's 23 years old, making his UC debut, just won a nice fight on the Contender Series to get a contract in front of Dana White, already fought once in the Apex. He's hyper-confident. In fact, he's overconfident, and that's what I'm thinking could be his demise. But the confidence is there. Mata, I don't think it's there at all, dude. So do, do you fade him? What would be the reasoning that Mata has more experience? He's, he's looked like a shell of himself. And the last thing, and then we'll move on. I think I'm going to take Tom Nolan. I'm undecided. For the, for the purposes of the show, it's going to be a Tom Nolan pick. For the parlays, if I was to make parlays right now, it would definitely be lower. But again, I'm going to wait for Waynes to make a final decision on this. The last thing I'll leave you with is if Tom Nolan tried to fight Manuel Torres or Jim Miller or Robert Hale, I, I think he loses all those fights. Like he's not he's not at that level. He hasn't been fighting the same level of competition of Moda. If he fought those guys, he might be look he might look bad like Moda did does. Sorry, bit of a tongue twister. So is one guy shot? He's thirty. Like how bad is it? It's possible he's just been losing to better guys. And so, I don't know. You could talk yourself around in circles in this one and, and try to convince yourself that you want to take Moda. And it's not the worst play going. I wouldn't fault anybody for taking the shot. I just don't think I can personally go there because we have to base this on how they've been looking recently. And how he's been looking recently is non-existent, Paul. He's not the same guy he used to be. Jim Miller really cracked his chin and his confidence and took his soul. Yeah. Took his soul. I mean, his the his entire UFC run has been pretty unimpressive, to be perfectly honest. All right, it's been bad. It's been bad. All of his good wins are before he came to the UFC. This the the opener fight of the card. We got Joshua Van taking on Felipe Bunes minus two fifty for Van, plus two ten for Felipe Bunes. It seems like an interesting fight all the way around. Because like Bunes, you could kind of dismiss it. I'm sure lots of people have. You look at. You know, 13 and six record. Oh, Van seems like a pretty good, uh, uh, seems like a pretty good prospect here. Why is, you know, this 13 and six guy, you dig a little bit into his record and it's just like, I see a lot of evs and ofs. Um, and he obviously lost to like Juicy Formiga. It's like, obviously this Felipe Bunez guy has went in there with some absolute savages, very, very good opponents over in Russia. Um, and then back over here in the LFA. So, you know, he's tied, he's, he's making his UFC debut after, you know, weigh-in issues for other people. And he pulled out of one whole mishmash of different stuff. But I like this van kid. Obviously he came in against Jalgis. Um, 
came in as a pretty big underdog and won that. You know, the joke was always Jalgis loses fights, but he only loses fights because uh, the judges kind of screw him. It's like he won that fight fair and square. Round one against Borges had the worst round that we've kind of seen from him. Uh, volume was very, very low. Didn't really, he just kind of seemed lackadaisical in there. It's like he goes into his corner, comes out in round two, puts up 77 significant strikes. Absolutely just turns on, like turns the volume all the way up. And I feel like if you can fight at that pace, the pace that he's brought, he threw, he threw 300 significant strikes in that fight. It's going to be really hard for a lot of people to hang at that type of pace. The kid's very, very technical and all of that. Maybe you got some intel on on Bunez, but uh, Van, I think at least at the very least, is a rifle favorite in this spot. What What are your thoughts? Yeah, I really like Van. And then people will point out to be like, "Man, you said Tom Nolan's twenty three and he's too young, and Joshua Van's twenty two, but it's like there's a, such a difference there." Van beat Paris Morant. Van beat Cleveland McLean. Makes his debut against Zaga Zumagula. Beats Kevin Borges. He's got the experience, and he's definitely got the skill. I really like what this kid brings to the table. Again, I picked Zalga Zumagulov over him. The interesting thing is that Josh Van made his UFC debut. He got that opportunity because Bunez pulled out of the fight versus Zalgas with a medical issue like four days before the fight. Josh Van seized the opportunity, jumped in as a sizable underdog, and made him work. And you talked about volume. This kid's all volume. He landed 120 significant strikes against Zalga Zumagulov. And Zalgas, I believe, went one for five in takedowns. So takedown defense checked out pretty good. His getup game was pretty good. His fight with Borges, I love this kid now. He's a legitimate prospect. Maybe go a little too high on him. And you're right. The first round, it was like, ooh, this is close. The fact that he can make round-to-round adjustments, right? The fact that he can go out and land 70 significant strikes in the second. He landed 156 takedowns overall. And he added in two takedowns. And this is what I like about this kid. Every fight, and he's really young, every fight, there's big development. He's not walking into punches like Tom Nolan. He's not a defensive liability. He moves exceptionally well. He's got very nice footwork. Part of the reason his opponents are landing big volume is because he's throwing so much volume, bound to get countered. But he rolls with the punches. He moves well. He's very athletic. And then when you watch tape on him, his problem is his, uh, his grappling. He's a natural striker from Myanmar. Got that grit in him. You know, his grappling leaves a little bit uh, to be desired, I suppose. His one pro loss is by second-round Renega Choke. Gives up his back. It was an 0-0 opponent. He got choked out. There's other fights of his, you know, where there's certain spots, maybe Cleveland McLean, certain spots where it's like, he's giving up his back. He's getting taken down. He doesn't look super comfortable. But then the very next fight, he's shooting the takedown. He's looking for the submission. When he gets positioned, he doesn't sit there and try to melt like cheese on you and be heavy. He's actively going for whatever is available. So that hyper-aggressiveness will eventually play against him. But his his willingness to jump into his bad element and improve on it has been very impressive. I like the kid. I like what he brings to the table. The one thing that would make Bunez a little bit, you know, interesting of a matchup is he's 12 years older, you know, 34-year-old against a 22-year-old. And Bunez very much is a grappler. He's got excellent grappling. He's got excellent, excellent jiu-jitsu. You mentioned he had a run in fighting for in Russia against tough Russians. Almost never got finished by them. He's got a flying triangle armbar flying triangle armbar yeah, over Johnny. yoni sherbatov yeah who we know is a legitimate flyweight competitor so bunez is by no stretch a fish out of water my issue is that 34 years old doesn't look like things are gonna go well for him he signs to lfa loses to formiga as you mentioned he takes this wasker cruise 13 and 9 absolute journeyman 
and he barely squeaks out a split decision over him. So they give him a title fight against Yuma Horiguchi, who's not UFC caliber, who's actually just really not all that good, and he's the betting underdog to Yuma Horiguchi, and he upsets him and he wins. And then it's like, hey, man, we need a guy on a week's notice to fight Zolgus. And he signs up, he puts his hands up, and then he says, oh, no, medical issue, and let's Van go in there, and Van does the damn thing. And then he's supposed to fight Dennis Bondar in this card, who's not very good. Bondar pulls out, Van's coming in. Van's in short notice. Maybe that's a reason to not take him, but I don't care if he's on short notice. He's 22, he's got an endless gas tank, and he throws just so much volume. If this thing stays standing, Bunez is cooked. If Bunez can force him to the ground, that's where he'll make it interesting. The thing is, whereas that's Van's weakness, you can see him steadily fill out, steadily improve, steadily get better. That all of a sudden, I'm not so sure that Bunez is just going to take him down at will. If he does take him down, I don't think he holds him down at will. And if he does manage to take him down and get a little bit of prolonged top game, he's going to need to slop up that submission and do it quick. If he doesn't, Van will return to his feet, start to chop him up, and start to eventually figure him out. Again, flyweight fight, usually close and competitive. Wrestler versus striker, or grappler versus striker, you prefer to go with the grappler. 12 years older, way more experience, live underdog. Definitely live underdog. I just can't get there on a personal level because I like Van. I think Van's got the striking advantage. I think he's got the usefulness. He's got the athleticism. Even though he's on short notice, he's never missed a, a session at the gym. He's going to come out here and he's going to expose Bunez, but just show he's the real deal and the other guy's just serviceable at best. <laughs> Do you have a uh, a Shabuzi Lat- or Latana Shabuzi update for the people? Yeah, so I'm doing a card March 9th, Battle Arts in Mississauga, same place that old Latana Shibusi got his first win. But uh, since his last fight, I got him in a gym called Action Reaction in North York, Toronto. Livy Vadney, former pro fighter, BJJ Black Belt, he's the coach over there. And so I said, listen, man, he's going to be very hard to deal with. He's deaf. The communication's not there. I don't think he's got a ton of skill as much as he's got heart raw athleticism so see what you can do the first couple months you could tell it was definitely a learning experience he was like he's got no ground game whatsoever and very hard to communicate with um he said as a positive though he's like because he's deaf he doesn't hear everything he does is off rhythm he's like which makes him very difficult to coach and very difficult to like you know teach things to but on the other hand he's like his his opponents or the guys that are sparring him in the gym they have no idea. Like he, he sees things different. He reacts to things different. To every, all of his timing is, is, is different. So he's like, he will be a problem if he continues at it. He's just got to continue at it. The other thing from Laton is he's very eager. So I think he gets in the gym. He's coming off a win. And I think he just tries to hit the ground running, right, with that limited experience. So he racked, he didn't hurt his shoulder, but like he kind of banged up his shoulder a little bit. He had a bit of a toe injury. It's just a regular... Uh, wear and tear from going to a gym and training and sparring. And so that's all new to him. So we got, again, car coming up March 9th. I'm like, I got a guy. Guy's six foot five. Latana six foot five. Uh, it would be a middleweight fight, even though Latana can make welterweight. But the guy's 0 and 2 and like very one dimensional kickboxer. So I'm like, if there was a guy to match him up with, it would be this Ivan character. And then talking to him, he's eager as hell, man. Like, he wants to fight. But then talking to Olivier, it was like, uh, we just got to slow the young lion down a little bit. Like, obviously, he wants to jump in there and do that. But, like, not like MMA is probably not the best avenue for him right now. So they want to book him in a couple kickboxing matches and kind of get him more comfortable with that range and the kicks and the distance. Use his length. Use his reach. Be confident in your kickboxing skills while training jiu-jitsu, while training wrestling, then transition back over to MMA where they can't take you down their forces stand with you and they can't stand with you. So 
I have a lot of respect for Olivier. Never lets any of his guys go pro unless they have at least 10 amateur fights. He slow grows them. Latana's got a ton of time. Uh, but it's up to him now, right? He needs to go to all the sessions. He needs to commit himself. He needs to put, essentially, uh, MMA is the most selfish sport in the game. Boxing, too. A very selfish sport. It has to be about you. You can't be making other people happy. You can't be attending birthday parties and weddings and dinners. It's a singular focus for your own career. And so not everybody can do that. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. It's up to Latana. It's up to Latana to say, I want to be a champion. I need to go to the gym twice a day, six times a week. I need to diet. I need to do nutrition. I need to do all of those things. And if he does, I think he's super talented. Olivia thinks he's super talented. But there's only so much you can do from the outside looking in. So I am hopeful maybe I can get him a kickboxer in an MMA fight on our next show, March 9th. But if I can't, you know, it's not the end of the world. His time is on his side. So get him that kickboxing match. Get him a couple smokers, a couple demos, and uh, and then eventually bring him back over. But sounds like things are going good with him. And I talked to him the other day. I was like, oh, how's training going? And yeah, his English is not great. But he was like, sir, you did your job. Now let me do mine. I was like, I like this kid. I knew there's something about him I liked. He's got the attitude. I hope big things come from him. So uh, yeah, I'm hoping 2024 is a big year for me. I'm hoping 2024, which is the 10th anniversary of Dogger Pass slash Bookie Beatdown, Big for the show. I hope all the fans have an excellent year. And 2024 for Latan Get that experience. Get that gym rep. And then uh, come out guns a-blazing. So the future looks bright all around, Paul. Yeah, well, he's 25. And that's 24. if and that's if and that's if that number is like legit. <laughs> you know? I had a conversation on the phone with a guy we were talking you know, about. If he wasn't uh, your guy, age, I think you would probably be saying these types of things. But uh yeah. Um no, obviously uh tons of t- guy just got into the sport he's obviously 25 some kids are you know training mma from the time they're small small children so yeah he's got to pull in uh big time work for the next couple of years and who knows onwards and upwards from here but uh that's just about it for us this week but before we go hit him with the prp code hit him with the prp okay we are going this week we're going to go with magman and Kalayev. Uh, Manel Cop, Gabriel Benitez, dog number one, Ricky Simone, oh. Phil Haas, dog number two, Waldo Costa, uh, Cortez Acosta, sorry, uh, Marcus McGee, Taylor Lapalus, Preston Parsons. So we got four dogs there, and then yeah, John Silva, Tom Nolan, Joshua Van. So 12 fight card, four underdogs. Sounds about right. I feel pretty good in that regard. It's not like I love the plus 110s, the plus 105s. Yeah, I think they got a shot. Taylor Lapalus is gonna have to fight for it, and it'd be a close, greasy decision. So yeah, just hoping it goes our way. And again, uh, be nice to kick off 2024 on the right foot. So want to go do that. And then last thing, Toutmaster, man. I'm not, they're giving me absolutely nothing to go out there and say, join Toutmaster. But the more people in the pool, the more prize. Obviously, it's beneficiary. But beyond all that, it's like I see a lot of people that get frustrated on they get one pick wrong. Or they get, you know, oh, I love this guy and he got himself disqualified. And just it, it ruined their night. It ruined their bankroll. It's like... Slight little things will cause people these big setbacks. And Tau Master is honestly fun for the whole year. You're getting some value, some entertainment the whole year. You watch every fight because you know, I don't got no money on it. Ooh, but I need that point. And I fished that little underdog because I wanted that 1.4 points. It, it's honestly really fun. The guys do a really good job of, of, of running it. And it's just like anything... It's not It's not like a household name game. It's not on the tip of everyone's tongues. They're not marketing it huge. They're not 
hosting at all these places, but like it's for my money's worth. It's a really fun, cool experience. The guy's been running it for a long time. And uh, I just love for the bigger the amount of people that are in it, the harder it is. And that's what I want. I don't want to go beat 90 people. I want to beat 200 people. That would be a lot more meaningful. And I'm not saying I'm going to win. I'm saying it's going to be close. It's going to be competitive. And it's a fight for the whole year. So join on board and talk shit to me. Beat me and talk some shit to me. I probably won't reply on Twitter anymore because it's a cesspool. <laughs> but uh, on my things to do for 2024, be more active on Twitter. So I, I do plan on getting back to it. But uh, I don't know what's going on with social media these days. But it's just like not cool. It's not cool, Paul. I haven't been spending too much time on the old Twitter machine either. It's pretty good for yeah, we've, it is what it is. We're, get, we're, we're getting kind of old is what it's really kind of coming down to. You have a new crop of younger younger people talking a whole bunch of smack, and it's just like, I'm never going to meet a lot of you in everyday life. So it's like if my first impression of you on social media from your burner account is you're being a dickhead, I don't. I just don't have time for it anymore, to be perfectly honest. Um, but yeah, as of right now, there is 81 people in, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was like more than that, but like the first like 15 rows or so are like the payout structure. So it's, uh, yeah, about 80, 81 people on there. I think we had like 140, 150 last year. I think it was 160, but the same thing happened Let's last year. Let's get this year. up to like, 200. It's $50 yeah, yeah. for an entire year. Every People single Thursday, they post the actual, you can go in and you put your picks in, and then you can put your picks in up until about an hour beforehand. It's one of those things, like, if you want to really compete for the top, you're probably going to have to do it every single week. I missed one this week or this year. It was the uh, the the card in Abu Dhabi. I was back home uh, taking care of some family stuff, and then oh, well, long, I got really uh, basically I got really really drunk. Woke up the next morning. The fights were about to start. It had already locked. Sailor V. So it's one of those things. It's like this the contest. It's like it's best to play a whole bunch of favorites early because like a six to one favorite you're getting at one to one. Right until you get deep into the season and you got to do some catching up to do. And then that's when you kind of pivot your strategy. But I'm talking like August, September is like when you start just throwing dogs in there, hoping to to catch up. If you're, you know, unlike Cody, who was just at the top the whole time, was able to kind of just stick to the game plan. I, I started uh, you know, falling you know down the rankings a little bit, and that's when you have to start, like, you know, fighting to get back into the game. Um, it is what it is. There's a whole strategy to it, but it's a lot of fun. They always do a great job. Everyone's always gotten paid out. Um, so, you know, we don't we don't vouch for very much, and they aren't paying us a damn thing. We only do it because they like us, so uh, because we like them. So, yeah, I think I think we drove the point home, Cody, for people. To, uh, to to join tight tout master do you have anything else to say no shit let's hit a prp be ranked number one in tout master you make some money and it'd be a great way to start the year but yeah no uh i wouldn't say all jokes aside because i'm planning on hitting a prp uh i do every single time you got to have that confidence going into it but yeah no just just excited to be back man i know it's been a three week long layoff there was definitely burnout effect i think after Last season, just show after show after show. But this is what we do, and this is what we love. So, again, just very grateful for the fans that tune in every week and support us. 
And uh, if you want to play Tout Master, you don't. Doesn't matter. Just hopefully you guys have a good year and enjoy the fights. That is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For producer Megan and Cody Safdick, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh, oh, oh. Oh.